Jesus, it's, a, it's great to be here this sunny Sunday summer morning. And uh, we're in in, Jan in July. We always go through. Uh, we talk about prayer. We have a sermon series on prayer that that fuels our lives and fuels the church and fuels the kingdom of God. And we're looking at John 17 this month. And today we're looking at verses 16 to 19. Our, the prayers of Jesus is our is our series. Jesus is, is praying to his Father. It's called the High Priestly Prayer, the night before he actually died for our sins. His prayer for us in John 17. Last week, Pastor Craig just showed us how we are highly esteemed by God, how, how we have an enemy who, who wants to, 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 to devour us and hang us up as we seek to follow God, and that to be effective, we have to focus on the, on, on the, the truth and on unity and on, and on joy. And it was true for them. It was true for all those who would be led and be followed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a question for you as we look at our four verses today. How should I, as a believer, see myself in this world? How should I see myself? What's my role here? I believed in Jesus. I've received the free gift of salvation that comes because of what he did for me on the cross. My, my salvation is secure. I'm going to heaven because of what Christ did, not because of what I did. So why doesn't God just instantly transfer me to heaven when I believe? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that? The other day, we went to see the Star Trek movie. I'm sure most of you by now have seen at least one Star Trek. I'm not getting any sound here. I'll talk. Okay, I can't walk around then. Oh, well. I'll talk loud. You've seen the Star Trek movies, and you know that in Star Trek, you know, uh, James Kirk and the other guys, they'll go on these, on these planets, these lands, and, and, and they'll be down there, and then they'll, they'll communicate to, to, the, to the bridge, uh, beam me up, Scotty, there's no intelligible life down here. And then they have this, and they, they're transformed. They're transported back to the bridge. Wouldn't it be nice if God did that when we got saved? Because there is no intelligible life down here, you know. Lord, just beam us up. Just beam us up. Hang on, there's a little switch here. Okay. All right, I'll, I'll try to do, do it. And I think it's got the left ear, not the right ear, if I remember correctly. So, well, give me, give me 10 seconds to reload here. And, um, but you've seen the Star Trek, uh, at least one of the movies, or one of the TV shows, I'm sure. And um, there, there's this, this, this instant uh, uh, moving from one spot to the other that happens because the transformer was really loud here. Really loud. Okay. We'll do the best we can. But wouldn't it be cool if that's what happened when we came to Christ? We were just, boom, we're right there in heaven. Doesn't work that way, though, does it? Doesn't work that way. And there's a couple reasons why. We're going to look at a few of them in this passage. There's two reasons. Let's look at the, the passage first. John 17. Verses 16 to 19. John 17, 16, 19. You have it in the overhead from your right and left. This is Jesus. He's praying to his Father. Middle of his prayer. Says verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. God's word. 
four simple verses. God uses his people most when we're living in this world, but not of this world. Still, still bad? I'm just going to use I got to talk like this. I'm fine. Let's just preach, okay? George Whitfield didn't need a microphone. I don't need a microphone. God uses his people most when we're living in this world, not of this world. Here, just take it. I'm going to use this. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're going to talk about the meaning of sanctify, sanctify them. The meaning... The method, the mission, and then finally the model in this passage. John 17, 16 and 19. First, the meaning. Sanctify them. The word sanctify is an interesting word in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible. Uh, let me give you a couple of different translations of this verse, but of this passage. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message, he talks about, they are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Make them wholly consecrated with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sakes. So they'll be, be truth consecrated in this mission. And notice he uses the word consecration more than the word sanctification. The Amplified Bible, just verse 17, sanctify them, purify, consecrate, separate them for yourself, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. This verse is not, not, not as simple as one might think, this passage here. No. There are actually two types of sanctification mentioned in the New Testament. And, and we see both of them in this passage, I believe. We need to break it down carefully if we want to see what Jesus is getting at here. Sanctify them in the truth. In, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, refer, refer to, to something that is set apart, separated. Distinguished from that which is common or normal. That's the idea. Something that's separated. Set apart. Things can be set apart. People can be set apart. In, in, in Numbers chapter 6, there's a the, the discussion about the Nazarite vow. The Nazarites were set apart from the normal Israelites, normal, normal leaders. They, they had special commitments they made. They were, they were people who were set apart to live a holy life that was distinct more than even the normal Israelites. Then things were set apart. Every time an offering was brought before the leaders, the priests, they bring a, a, a turtle dove, for instance, a pigeon or turtle dove. It had to be, it had to be, had to be without blemish, spot or blemish, but it had to be laid hands on it, and it was separated from the others that they didn't bring. There was a, a separation, a setting apart for holy, the holy purpose of being a sacrifice that they did. Set apart. Two, two aspects there, even in the Old Testament. Now, in trying to explain these two aspects, I've got an illustration that I hope will work for you. Um, something that's set apart. I want you to think about uh, your closet, going to your closet. And this is, a, this is a, a, an illustration. Uh, guys, I hope you don't do this. I hope this is the girls that do this, the women, the monks that do this. And you have a, a very, very, very expensive dress. A picture, I, I was just looking for, I don't know a lot about, about women's attire, so I, I found a dress uh, uh, by uh, a, a designer named Maim Khan, a woman's silver, sleeveless, metallic, embellished, embellished gown. It costs a mere $9,990. <laughs> you 
You ever heard of it? I have not heard of it. <laughs> I don't have, I don't, I don't, my wife doesn't have anything like that. Uh, um, by the way, the shipping is free, if you're interested. When you look in your closet and you see that dress, you know it's different than the others, isn't it? <laughs> because I don't think you have more than one of those if you have one. It's set apart, it's different. Just because of what it is, because there's a quality of, 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 of clothing that's there. But also in your closet, you have something else. It's just a, it's a, it's a sweatshirt. A sweatshirt. <laughs> it doesn't even have a, a school or anything. It just says sweatshirt. But it's special to you, and you love it. And so of all your sweatshirts you have, you, you, you have that one in a, in a certain area. It's separated from the other. It's designated for special purpose. You, maybe you're going to wear it. I don't know, some special event, you're gonna, you're gonna pull it out. It's separated. Now, the dress is separated and the sweatshirt are separated. But intrinsically, that, that, that the dress is much more valuable than the sweatshirt. The sweater, you can get a sweatshirt, like, you know, a couple, 10, 15 bucks, you can get one of those. The New Testament uses the word sanctification or separate in both those ways. And, and so we, when we see the word, we have to figure out what, what, what is going on? What is he talking about here when he says he prays to the Father to sanctify them? The scriptures talk about our, our position in Christ, the position that we have as, as God's uh, being righteous in Christ. This is our, our identity, our objective identity as those who are in Jesus Christ by faith. This is like a sweatshirt. Just you and I, common people, not because of anything in us. God has given us God's his, his, uh, salvation through Christ. And the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, there's still nothing really special about us. But we're set apart. We are, even the New Testament calls us saints. The New Testament calls us holy. We are God's holy, separated people. The moment we trust Jesus Christ. It's instantaneous. It's unchangeable. That's the gospel. But then the, the scriptures talk about our condition, the condition of our lives, the condition of our heart, how we're walking with God, and it talks, it uses this word sanctification as well. And this is this formal dress that we saw, this $9,900 dress, because it's easily observable in your closet that there's something special about it. It's different than the others. It stands out. Anyone can see it's different. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be sanctified in that sense as well. To, to stand out in the world so that men will see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. He said in Matthew chapter 5. An observable sanctification. Now, to make things even more complex... The New Testament, when it uses the word sanctification, sometimes you don't know if it's talking about the first one or the second one or both of them. <laughs> it can be used in several different ways. Now, the, the, the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession, which we ascribe to, asks the simple question, question 35. What is sanctification? It says, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Notice that's a settled position. We are renewed in the whole man after the image of God 
and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. You notice how that's, there's a progressiveness in the changing condition of the life. You see both those in that statement. Because sanctification implies both. The word sanctification is a broad word. This great song years ago said, look at me, I've been set free. All my sins are washed away. Christ has set me free. That's talking about the justification that we have before God and the instant sanctification that, that, that's promised to us when we receive Christ. Many of you have read probably Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he addresses the struggle of the heart, the struggle of the life. I won't read it, but he talks about how the, the things that I, I know I want to be doing, I don't always do them. And the things that I don't want to do, I know I shouldn't be doing, so sometimes I do them. What is wrong with me? That's how Paul talks in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? He cries out. He's concerned about his condition. He's concerned that he's not as sanctified as he wants to be. He sees the law of God. He says, I, I, I want to do it, but I'm not doing it. That's the frustration. That's the, that's the frustration of a converted heart. That's what we have there. And Paul expresses that in chapter 7. But he, but, but he doesn't stop there. He exclaims, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's how he, he says, so, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't serve him completely, but I'm serving him. I don't walk with him completely, but I'm walking with him. I don't obey him completely, but I obey, I'm obeying him. And then, then I, I, one of the things I don't like is, is the, the chapter division, because chapter 8 continues in the flow. Chapter, Romans chapter 8, he says, with all, after talking about this conflict, there is therefore now, not in the future, now, even with all the struggle. Now, no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. He's talking about the sanctification thing, that we're not what we want to be yet. We're not what we used to be, but we're what God has made us right now. He's changed us. He's transformed us. And in the midst of this process of being uh, sanctified, there's no condemnation. Look at me. I've been set free. All my sins have been washed away. Christ has set me free. We're free to walk with God, free to know God. So chapter 8, it continues for the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The, the idea of law keeping, trying to follow the law that I might be pleased with God. I mean, I'm free from that. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It was the likeness of sinful flesh because he was sinless. It looked like, but he was, he, he was the God-man. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So now we, we have the capacity to, to do what God wants us to do here on earth. To be God's people. To be the ones who are following him. And he leadeth me, he leadeth me, as we just sang. And so our heart is to want to do the will of God. So let me, ask, let me go back to the question we asked in the beginning. Why are we still here? Why does God not instantly just beam us up when we trust Christ? Well, this is one reason. That we might be one of those on earth who is fulfilling his word. There might be some people on earth who get it. That there may be some people whose lives are being transformed day by day. That he, God can say to Satan, see Satan, there's one, there's another one. 
There's some people here who really believe it. That's why he's left us here. That's one reason why he's left us here. Now, now we, we don't do that by just gritting our teeth. <laughs> no, it's, it's the gospel that fuels that. I love the song that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This sanctification is the work of the Spirit of God in our lives as we focus on him, as we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus. That's the meaning of sanctification here. Now let, let me go to the next point, is, is the method, because he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We grow in obedience to the word of God. That's what we're called to do, grow in his word. The emphasis here is on God's word, God's truth, as a source of this process of sanctification in our lives. And we heard the, 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 the passage of 1 Peter chapter 2, as newborn babes desire the milk of the word, that's what happens. They, you grow, a child grows as they, as they partake of that, that formula, that word, that milk. And it's like when a, a young babe, a young Christian, born again, takes in the word, they, there's, a, there's a growth to take. You don't always see the, just as a, a child uh, taking milk, you don't notice everyday growth. But taking, that, that child continues to, to take of the milk, they grow. And it's the same way with God's word. Eventually, it's observable. Ephesians chapter five, 5 talks about sanctifying her, the bride of Christ, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word cleanses us and helps us to be growing so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He might, she might be holy without blemish. <clears throat> Kevin DeYoung, um, <clears throat> the book of Holy and the Holiness is a great uh, quote here. It's unfortunate that some church leaders and scholars like to shame Christians for making too much of the Bible. We worship Jesus, not, the wor not words on a page, they say. Well, well, of course, we don't bow down before ink and paper, but don't think for a second that making much of the Bible is somehow antithetical to heartfelt communion with Christ. One of the recurring themes in 1 John is that we abide in Christ by letting the apostolic deposit of truth abide in us. Th those who truly belong to God listen to his inspired apostolic messengers. Doctrine is not a distraction from Christ. In fact, we do not have communion with Christ apart from the truth about Christ and, and from Christ. We are sanctified in the truth and God's word is truth. You know, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, there's in chapter 10 and 11, there's three stories that Jesus tells, and I love, the, love how he puts those stories together in the Gospel of Luke. In the middle, there's a Good Samaritan story, you know, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan who helped the, um, the man in distress. And then there's a story of Mary and Martha. And, and I think we often take that story wrong. Often people look at the story of Mary and Martha, and they think it's about the different temperaments that people have. I don't think that's what it's about. I think, I think it follows this Good Samaritan story that we need to be active in helping people. And I think, the, 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 good, the, the Mary and Martha story is a caution against an incredible activism that doesn't sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. That's what it is. That's what it is. We can become so active in serving God that we don't listen to God. That's why that story. And then the next, the next chapter, again, don't ignore the chapter division, is, Lord, teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us how to sit before you and just rest. And so he teaches them how to pray. Those two stories follow the Good Samaritan. That's very important. Because the word sanctifies us. We must sit at the feet of Jesus to grow in our faith, folks. We must do that. We're sanctified as we give ourselves to 
the Word of God. Wayne Gruden, uh, in his commentary, uh, um, talks about, um, in his systematic theology, he says, the New Testament does not suggest any shortcuts by which we can grow in sanctification, but simply encourages us repeatedly to give ourselves to the old-fashioned, time-honored means of Bible reading, meditation, prayer, worship, witnessing, Christian fellowship, and self-discipline or self-control. It's important that we continue to grow both in our passive trust in God to sanctify us and in our active striving for holiness and greater obedience in our lives, active and passive. If we neglect active striving to obey God, we become passive, lazy Christians. But if we neglect the passive role of trusting God and yielding to him, we become proud, overly confident in ourselves. In either state, our sanctification will be greatly deficient. We must maintain faith and diligence to obey at the same time. The word, actively giving ourselves to God's word. God's will is that we stay in his word. But thirdly, God's will is that we stay in this world. We have a mission. We have a mission. We're called to infiltrate a broken world in the name of Jesus. Stay close to this microphone now. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We have a mission. Sent, the word sent is literally in the Greek, apostolo, apostolo, the word apostle. It comes from that word. It means to be sent with a commission, sent with authority to represent a king or leader, apostolo. The world, what's the world? The world is the anti-God system of beliefs and values that is passing away. As First John tells us, it's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, the pride of, pride of possession. It's, it's this, this system. It, um, I like to have a, a Venn diagram I like to use that helps us to understand um, the three aspects of how we as Christians relate to this world. Here's Venn diagrams up here. Okay, first one. This is the mo- there's three models. The first is an isolation strategy. The, the world and the church. And they hardly intersect. You can call this the separatist or the Amish strategy. God's people are to be radically separated from the, from the ways of the world. The second model is the imitation strategy. This is people who are nominal. They have a civil religion. They don't have a real active, vibrant faith. And, and they believe that, that, that the work of God is to just be involved in the world and to be not, not be distinct at all. Not believe anything different to just become amalgamated into the culture. But there's a third model that I think is the biblical model. It's infiltration strategy. Infiltration strategy. Where the church invades the world for the sake of the kingdom of of the king. God's people are to saturate the world with the kingdom values and kingdom beliefs. We're ambassadors for Christ. Uh, We're in the world. We're not of the world. We're to be transforming agents, bringing God's word, God's shalom to a broken world. Infiltration, not isolation. Not imitation. Infiltration is the call of God. And it's what Jesus is praying. Because God's people tend to want to lean one way or the other. Maybe you, maybe you lean one way or the other. God wants us to, to infiltrate, not to be aloof from the world, but not to be consumed by it. Because the world isn't just these values and, and, and these belief systems. The world is people. People. People for whom Christ Need, has died and need to hear that message. 
It's people. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus interacting with people. I just, in the Gospel of John, there's three kinds of people that we see him interacting with. Three, three, three stories uh, that he talks uh, In John chapter 3 is the first one. He talks to a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, he was a very religious man. He was a Jew. He was a leader of the Jews. He comes to Jesus by night. And, but I, frankly, he was not very open to, to Jesus and open to God. He had his religious hang-ups and his religious... He, had his, he, he thought he understood things. Jesus addresses him. Jesus talks to him one-on-one. -on -one. Very next chapter, Jesus talks to a, almost the opposite kind of person. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's not Jewish. She seems from the chapter to be somewhat loose in her lifestyle. Not like the Pharisee who supposedly was an upstanding citizen in society. There are probably some economic differences there too, by the way. Jesus, one-on-one -on -one with her as well. In reality, she's very open to him, as you know, in John chapter 4, if you've read that chapter. And then in John chapter 9, there's another kind of person. This is a person who is confused, desperate, needy. He's the blind man. Who Jesus touches his life, and, and then there's these interactions with the religious leaders and, and the parents. And then he comes back, and he very quickly understands, repents, and believes. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, didn't run away from people. He was involved with people. He had one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Jesus was a man on a mission. Even as he was sent by his Father, he sends us out to be people on a mission. We, 2 Corinthians 5, are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador lives in one nation, but that's not his home nation. His citizenship is in the nation where he came from. In fact, an ambassador might have dual citizenship. He may be a citizen of, of, of this country and may become a citizen of another country, but he, but he lives in the embassy and he, he, he doesn't represent the nation that he's living in. He's representing the nation that he came from. And, and, and Paul says that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. This nation is not our home. Do you understand that? Now, you might, you might have uh, a citizen. You may, maybe you vote, you have a citizen, you're a citizen of this country, and that's okay, you should do that. But don't think it's really your, if you've trusted in Jesus, you're an ambassador to this nation. In fact, Paul says to, to, in the, to the people of Philippi who thought they were from Macedon, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where your citizenship is. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. This is our second reason in the passage why we are not beamed up instantly. We're on a mission, folks. God has put us here to bring people to hear the gospel. But it's not just to bring people, it's to infiltrate. And that's why Jesus is praying, Lord, keep them sanctified in this world. Don't take them out of the world. Don't, make them, don't give them a retreat mentality. Give them an infiltration mentality that they may be lights right where they are. They may be salt right where they are. Now, we often marvel at the early church and how, how could this early church, a small band of people, have such a great impact. Let me read to you a letter uh, that, that's been found from the, first, the second century. I've read this before, but it's a wonderful um, quote. It's rather long. I'm going to read it anyway. It's uh, the letter uh, to Diognetus. Th there's been allusions to this in the culture. But this is, this is the whole, this is much of the context of this statement. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality 
language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. The two guys interacting are Greek. This is a letter from one Greek man to another, trying to figure out Christianity. And yet, there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, whatever it may be, a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they don't expose them. They don't expose them. And by the way, the early church was known for adopting abandoned babies. That was one of the things that they did. They share their meals, but not their wives. Rampant immorality and adultery in the, in the first century, first couple of centuries, the, the church was known to be different. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they're citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, yet they, 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 they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. That's the irony. Condemned because they're not understood. They're put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They're totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference to their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even then, they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They're attacked by the Jews as aliens, they're, they're persecuted by the Greeks, and yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. To speak in general terms, he concludes, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body, while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world, but cannot be identified with the world. We're in this world, but we're not to be of this world. The early church, that was why God blessed the early church. They understood their identity as a separate people who were not to stay separate, who to, who to infiltrate. This summer has been a crazy summer as we think of the, the social crisis of our nation. It's been crazy. There's great anxiety, great fear, great confusion, great, lots of discussion about where we're going, where we are, where we're going. There's some who say, tear the system down, let's start over. Many ask, what is the role of the church, or is there a role for the church, or, or what is a church? All kinds of questions are in the air. You know, the most important thing we can do as people of faith is to remember that Jesus saves. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. And the, the, the people who are in fear and anxiety and don't know what the future is, we know where the future is headed. History is his story. Jesus Christ is Lord. Just as Isaiah saw on the throne in that day when the, when, when, when the, the, the leader of Israel, Uzziah, had died. And they knew, where are we heading in our society? 
He had a vision of the throne and saw that God is still on the throne. And we say need that right now, don't we? And we need to know that God is on the throne and, and that though you know, we're a people of unclean lips and that, that, that God is looking for someone, for someones who, who will say, here am I, send me. He's put us here in times like these because the world needs those who are serious about mission. And fourth and lastly is, 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 is the model, the model, this, the, 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 the model of, of sanctification. It's Jesus, of course. He is the one. He says in verse 16, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus was not of this world. He, was the he came from another place. He came from heaven to this world, the incarnation. He says, I, verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Son of God, Jesus. Translation, the, the New American says, for their sakes um, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified. The word sanctify and consecrate, there's a common root there in the, in the original language, and the, the words are very similar, and some translations use the same word. ESV chooses to make it different. I consecrate myself. Amplified, again, amplified version of, of verse 19. So for their sake and on their behalf, I sanctify, dedicate, consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified, dedicated, consecrated, made holy in the truth. So again, consecrate, sanctify, very similar words. And we have to, from context, figure out what specifically is being talked about. Now, Jesus Christ is indeed our model. We'll talk about that first, but he's also our Messiah. We're going to talk about that also. He's our model first. He's our model. The incarnation. He came to this earth, and that's a model for us of how we're to be in this earth. As he was sent, so are we sent. Guthrie, the uh, uh, commentator, says, when Jesus sent... For, the sake, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. He could not have meant to become holy. You understand that? But to set himself apart for holy task. Now, we need to become more and more holy. Sanctification. Jesus didn't have to become more and more holy. Why? Son of God. <laughs> That, 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 that's the, the, the twist here. So, so, it, so and, that, and that's why in some translations, in fact, ESV, they use a slightly different word there, though some translations don't. So we can catch that distinction. Jesus' sanctification. Now, Jesus was very intentional about, about what it looked like. And now I think there's a reason for us to, as we watch Jesus. If we think of God, the Son of God, who was pure and holy coming to earth, the question is, what would that look like? Probably my favorite passage to talk about that is Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is in prison and his, his disciples come to Jesus and says, Jesus, are, you, are you, you sure you're the one? Because John's saying you're the one and he's going to die and you better be the one. <laughs> we want to make sure you're really the one. Are you really the Messiah? And in that discussion, Jesus, one of the issues you see in Jesus' life was they, they accused him of being a friend of sinners. And a friend of, the, of, of a wine bipper in the authorized version, a winos, and people who, who were drunkards. And, and so John was just scratching his head because John, you see, was a Nazarite. That's why he had that funky diet and funky garb. If you look at in the, in the Gospels, he, was, he had this Nazarite vow, that kind of a commitment. And Jesus didn't have a Nazarite vow. Jesus came not aloof. And in the wilderness, Jesus came with the people. So John is saying, yeah, he's the son of God, but 
gosh, he's hanging out with all these people. And I'm going to die. Let me make sure. So, so in Matthew 11, there's this, this great discussion there. And Jesus, is, Jesus is tells them, you know, I, I came for sinners. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I came to infiltrate. I came for, for those who need me. And I want to interact with them, not from afar, but up close and personal. And that's an incarnational model for that's a model for us of what of what true sanctification is. It's to be holy in the midst of the world, not apart from the world. Amen. That's what Jesus is calling us to do and to be. Uh, I, I think often about um, the potential that we have in, in, in our sub communities in our in our world today, sub communities, the, the people that we interact with, because interactions in our world are changing. It used to be neighborhood was very important. That's not as important, though it needs to be. We need to reinvent that. But, but the sub-communities of our life, our workplace, our, um, the hobbies that we have, the things that interest us, the, the, the online chat rooms that you interact with, and people like that. Uh, it may be people at school. We all have these sub-communities that we're involved with. And we need to take more seriously, how do we infiltrate those sub-communities with the gospel. Our presbytery a few months ago, we had um, Reverend Al Dayhoff, he's a former PCA pastor, who said, I'm going to give up being a pastor and I'm going to go start a church among unreached people. He has a church in the bar. We have a picture of his uh, church in a blues bar. And so he goes to the blues bar and interacts with people and says he becomes the pastor of 200, 300 people in a blues bar. And um, he, I, I was very fascinated by it because, you know, one of my sons is a tattoo artist and one of the things that Al Dayhoff says is that don't be, don't be afraid of people with tattoos. Read their tattoos because people are writing to the most important things in their life on their body. Some of the things that people, the most precious things to people, something they don't always share with people, so but write, but they'll write a picture or image on their body to depict it. So don't ignore the things that people. But that, that was just part of it. I, but it also reminded me of a couple years ago. My sons were you know, uh, a band called Apollo Sun back then. And I remember one Saturday, I went to, to see them at a bar in Dundalk, I think it was. And um, both myself and the drummer's father were guitarists. And at the end of one of their sets, they said, hey, we want our dads to come up and play with us. And so me and, and the drummer's dad, we, said, we played a blues song, you know, just a basic blues song together. And it was, it was a lot of fun. But, but, I, but I thought when I saw the, the, the Al Dayhoff, the blues bar, I thought about that. You know, this, this, is, this is good. This is what the church ought to be doing. We ought to be the, the kind of church that's present where people are. That's, that's the, kind of, the kind of people we want to be, the kind of church that we want to be. Sanctify them. In 2 Timothy 2, it says this. In a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are of honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of, for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Jesus is our model, but most of all, Jesus is our Messiah. And understanding that he's our Messiah is what fuels us as we seek to follow him. It's understanding his grace, 
his forgiveness and the peace that he gives, that gives us uh, the confidence that we can follow him, that we can obey what he says in his word as we see the word coming to us. We first and foremost are people who don't thrive to obey, but people who seek to worship and rest and experience his grace. And he, and, and he look, notice what he says in verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Now again, that, that consecration isn't him becoming more holy. He's setting himself aside. And the commentators ask, what does it mean that he set himself aside? He set himself aside to be offerings were, were, were set apart with a special holy purpose. Here's the irony. In Jesus, the high priest, Jesus, the high priest who goes to the altar and he doesn't find a lamb, he becomes the lamb. Did you get that? He's the priest who doesn't look for the offering. He's the priest who is the offering. Doesn't it make you want to worship him? Doesn't it make you want to love him? Doesn't it make you want to say, Why? Why would you do that for us? He's our Messiah. And this thing called sanctification begins with understanding that incredible truth that he died for our sins, that we might have life and life abundant. He's spotless, unblemished, the perfect lamb. And in him, we're justified and we're sanctified. A couple quick applications as I see my clock has run out. The first is just trust and worship him. Hallelujah, what a savior is what that song says. Hallelujah, what a savior. The fact that, that Jesus Christ on the next day after this passage, at this conversation, went to die on a cross for you and for me. Worship him. Gratitude. Love and obedience. Our hearts should be overflowing every day. And secondly, Jesus in this passage is praying for our sanctification. Doesn't that call us to say, hey, we should be praying for our sanctification and the sanctification of one another? It's a call for us to, to, to imitate Jesus. Okay, well, Craig used this passage last week in Luke chapter 22. Well, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fall, fail. And we have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We to pray for ourselves and for each other that we would, our faith would grow strong and wouldn't grow weak and fail. Application, Jesus is praying for our mission, that we'd be people who are prepared and equipped to do mission. So shouldn't we do the same thing for ourselves and for one another? Pray about the mission. Now, in our groups, in our, in our homes, we, we pray, and we should pray for the simple mundane things of life, you know, food and clothing. We should pray for those things and relationships. That's good, but, you know, kingdom prayer is prayer for, for the advancement of God's kingdom in our own lives and in our world. That's kingdom prayer. We should be praying about the mission. Praying about the mission. Are you committed to that? You know, there's, there's a great story in the Gospels, I'll close with this, where Jesus goes to a, a, a man who's basically out of his mind. He's a, the, the the demoniac from Gadara. And the, the, he's, he's, he's out of control. No one wants to, he, he's an outcast. No one wants to go near this. <laughs> no one wants to go near this guy because he's just out of control. Jesus exercises the demons out of him. The demon, they're so powerful that they go into the pigs. The pigs go over the cliff. Amazing story. And it says, the, Mark says, the man was then clothed 
and in his right mind. The powerful power of Christ to transform that man. And then the passage doesn't end right there. Here's how it ends. Verse 18 to 19, 20, chapter 5. Jesus is getting to the boat. And the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Folks, we want to see people marveling at what Christ has done.